With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I am back to share another solved murder case for you all. I don't have any kind of case updates or much I want to say before getting into the details of this case. I do, however, want to say that you might hear some sounds behind me. I live very close to a military base, and apparently 9 o'clock at night is when they are deciding to fly. So if you hear some airplane noises, that is why. I also want to say thank you guys so much for coming back to our podcast and giving us a listen. It's incredible to see our numbers continue to grow. And if you like what we are doing, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcast letting us know. Those reviews help us more than you guys know. It helps others who like the same content as you find us through suggestions. We recently hit 2 million downloads and are so shocked about that. And we cannot wait to see where we are by our three-year anniversary at the end of next month. Okay, so without further ado, friends, let's get into the details of today's case, which is on the murder of Beverly Carter. Beverly Carter was a successful 50-year-old real estate agent in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was known within the community because she was the queen of million-dollar listings. Beverly was a top seller for a real estate firm called Cry and Like in North Little Rock, and anyone who worked directly with Beverly adored her. Not only that, but her clients almost always became close friends. So much so that Beverly would get invited to their weddings, baby showers, and other life events. She just literally became a fast friend to anyone and everyone that she met. Many people knew who Beverly was not only for the work that she had done with hundreds of clients, but because she also had her face in the paper every week and also had a billboard on one of the busiest interstates in Little Rock. So she was just this well-known name and face within the community. Everything I saw about Beverly described her as this amazing and outgoing woman with an infectious smile that people gravitated towards. She was so kind-hearted and loving and just a radiant, beautiful person both inside and out. And again, people just gravitated towards her not only in her personal life, but within her professional work life as well. Not only did Beverly have this amazing personality, incredible work ethic, and a heart of gold, she also was stunningly beautiful. And it was her good looks that caught the eye of her husband, Carl, when they were just young kids. At the age of 16, Beverly was working at a hamburger shop in Texas when in walks 19-year-old Carl Carter. He was there to purchase some food, and the two of them hit it off, and it wasn't long before they married in a courthouse wedding. 
Eventually, Carl and Beverly would have three boys. The boys were her absolute everything, and she enjoyed being a mother. And then, eventually, she was a grandmother. Life wasn't always picture-perfect, though, in the Carter household. Beverly and Carl had some marital issues like a lot of couples do, especially couples who get married at such a young age. The struggles included some financial issues as well as some infidelity on Carl's part. The two, however, didn't want to give up on the life that they had built with their boys, and so through the ups and downs, they worked it out. When Beverly and Carl's 20th wedding anniversary rolled around, Carl had asked Beverly to remarry him, and the two renewed their vows. Beverly's son described this vow renewal as Beverly's chance to get the wedding she had always dreamed of since she and Carl had gotten married in a courthouse. It was a huge party that they shared with their closest friends and family, and Beverly went all out. They had the flowers, the venue, the white dress, the tux. It was absolutely everything. It was a few years after this vow renewal that Beverly obtained her real estate license, and she started to be this powerhouse in the real estate world. Instantly, her little real estate gig was booming, and she ended up being the top selling and listing agent for the year 2013. In the year 2013, she did over $12 million in property sales, which in central Arkansas, that is said to be very, very good. While working at the firm she was at, she became extremely good friends with some of the girls that were in there. The three other ladies that she worked with all recalled Beverly as having this magic about her that made clients absolutely fall in love with her and the houses that they were touring. They also enjoyed working together so much that though it was work, the ladies often felt like it was play, and they spent their days giggling and laughing in the office. September 24th, 2014 started out as any ordinary day for Beverly. The day started off well for her because she had won an office competition and won $50 cash. Obviously, this was exciting for her, and she was looking forward to the busy day in the office. But what she was most excited about was the phone call that she received around 2 p.m. that day. It was a man who she had been working with over the phone for a few days, and he had said that he was interested in getting a showing of a property, and that if he liked it, he would be willing to pay cash for it. Beverly asked the man who said his name was Stephen Adams if his wife would be joining them. And this was a precaution that Beverly would take because she tried to never be alone when showing homes. He said that his wife would be there, and even at one point, the wife got on the phone and spoke with Beverly as well, stating that yes, that she would be there. And so they all agreed to meet at 6 p.m. Come the end of the workday and before that showing, Beverly was really tired from a busy day and was feeling a little bit like she didn't want to go do that final showing. But the prospect of it being a cash offer, which typically means the house closing would be a quicker close, drove her to keep the appointment. If all went well, this would be an easy deal to work out and she would be done. The location of this showing wasn't far from her house and it was in an area that she frequently worked in and was very familiar with. The house that she was going to be showing was a beautiful 4,100-square-foot home that backed up to the old River Lake in Scott, Arkansas. 
the house was listed for $235,000, and if Beverly could seal the deal, that would have been a pretty good payout for her, which she was in need of because her financial situation once more was a little rocky. Before heading off to this final showing, Beverly let her husband of 34 years know that she was showing this final house at 6 p.m. and that she would be home after. She had made plans to bring dinner for them when she was done, and before going off to the showing, she gave Carl the address where she was going as well as some of her girlfriends in the office. Come 8.30 p.m., Carl was getting increasingly concerned. He had tried to call and text his wife to get an update on when she was going to be coming home, but he didn't get a response back. He ended up calling his son, Carl Jr., to see if he had spoke with his mom, and Carl Jr. told his dad that he hadn't spoken with her, but he wasn't overly concerned because there had been times that Beverly had worked late working out deals, and he knew that his dad usually was pretty protective over his mom. But he did agree to go over to the real estate office that Beverly worked at and check to see if she was there. But when Carl Jr. and his wife pulled into the parking lot, they found that the business was completely dark inside, doors were locked, and nobody was there. Carl Jr. called his dad back to let him know that the office was closed and nobody was there, and this was about the time that Carl Sr. had pulled up to the property that Beverly was supposed to be showing. Carl found Beverly's car still parked in the driveway, and he noticed that the front door of the home was wide open. When he glanced into Beverly's car, he also noticed that her purse was still inside on the passenger seat. Carl went inside the home, searching all over the house to see if his wife was inside, but she was not. So at this point, he knew that this wasn't right and that he needed to call the police. The fact that Beverly's car was left behind with all of her personal items was something that she would have never have done. But Carl Jr. and some of Beverly's realtor friends that Carl Sr. had notified tried to remain positive and not jump to wild conclusions. They thought that maybe it was a possibility that Beverly rode with the potential buyers to show other homes in the area. Beverly's friends went over to the other vacant homes that were Beverly's listings and went to check the lockboxes to see if anyone had opened them. But to their surprise, they found that they hadn't been opened at all. As the hours ticked by, the more this seemed like something wasn't right, and a mass email went out to all of Beverly's co-workers, letting them know that she had been reported as missing. While people were being alerted of Beverly's disappearance, her family and police were gathered at the home off Old River Drive. Around 1 a.m., Carl's phone went off with three back-to-back text messages from Beverly. He called the officers over and read the text out loud. Beverly had texted back that her phone was dead and that she was out having drinks now. Beverly's family knew that this wasn't like Beverly. She would have never have gone out and not have told someone where she was going, especially her husband. Carl Jr. recalls in an interview for Dateline that when he heard that his mom had texted, he did this big sigh of relief. But when he heard what the text messages said, he knew that she wasn't okay. Something was terribly wrong and someone else had her phone. 
Across town, Brenda and Stacy, two women that Beverly worked with, also received text messages around this time from Beverly. In one message, she had told Brenda that she was sorry that her phone had died and that she had just turned it back on. In the way that this text back was written, Brenda felt like it was off. And I think we all have best friends that we know exactly how they text and type out their messages, and we can tell if it's them or not them or if someone's using their phone. It was like that for Brenda. She just had this gut feeling that the person on the other end of this text message was not Beverly. So Brenda texts back, quote, Can you tell me if you left the red folder on my desk? End quote. This would have meant something to Beverly had Beverly herself read it, because those within Beverly's office had been trained to use a code word when they felt like they were in danger or were uncomfortable in a situation with a client. They were told to mention a red folder. So for an example, an agent can call someone they worked with and say, hey, can you grab me the red folder for the 123 Main Street property? And this would tell the person that they needed to get authorities to that location quick. So I want to say that this is incredibly smart, and this wasn't something that I had ever heard about. So I went to my Facebook where I asked my realtor friends if they knew about the red folder and what it meant. Many has said that they had heard the concept, but their office had other code words. I was also really pleased to hear that many of my friends that work as realtors have other safety precautions that they follow, as well as trainings that they have been offered to them, which we will touch a little bit on that topic later in this episode. So getting back to the details here, Brenda sends that red folder text, and unfortunately there was no response back from Beverly. So she sends another text message asking, well, did you? And again, that text also went unanswered. Beverly's friend Stacy also got text messages from her, but her message had said that she was out having drinks with friends. She also felt like this wasn't Beverly texting back because Beverly's closest friends were all coworkers, and those are the people that she would typically go out for drinks with. Yet they were all worried sick about her, so that couldn't have been the case. So the people that responded to this call initially were just patrol cops, and they weren't equipped to deal with a missing person. And after doing routine questioning, they realized that they were in over their head, so they called in backup. And this is when Detective Jeff Allison first got involved with the case. From the get-go, Detective Allison felt that this wasn't a case of a woman just walking off and going and doing her own thing. It was Detective Allison that also went into the home for the first time to begin looking for any clues. One thing that he found was that the electricity was off to the house, which I find odd, and I couldn't really find much information about why that was, so I'm assuming that maybe it was just because the house was a vacant home, But with his flashlight, he shined it across the ground to see if they could see any disturbances in the dust that had settled over the floor. He found that there was some disturbances in the dust, but it had just appeared as if someone had walked through. It didn't appear that there had been any kind of struggle that had taken place. But one thing that he noticed was outside the front door, there was fresh tire tracks that had been left in the dirt and grass, and it had appeared that someone had either pulled up next to the house or they had backed their car towards the front door. 
When canvassing the area, authorities also started knocking on doors and asking if anyone had seen anything that day. And one of the neighbors recalled seeing a black vehicle that was pulled into the driveway. When she looked outside again about 25 to 30 minutes later, she said that she saw the same vehicle backed up to the front door and that she had seen a skinny white man with short hair outside of the home. Inside the home really didn't give any leads for Detective Allison. Nothing more than the dust disturbance was found, and the scene had essentially been contaminated because Carl Sr. had walked all over the inside of that home searching for his wife. He went in the bathrooms, the garage, upstairs. He literally searched that house top to bottom. So with little to go from the inside of the home, Detective Allison began looking at Beverly's car further. He was provided keys to the car from Carl Sr. and he started looking at her belongings that she had left behind. Inside the car was a notebook that Beverly used to keep information about listings and clients that she was going to be seeing. He found the listing for the Old River Drive property and attached to it was the name of two individuals along with an email address as well as a phone number. However, Detective Allison didn't call the number right away because he had this feeling that Beverly was being held against her will and that she was still alive. He didn't want to call the number and tip anyone off before he found out who it was. Not to mention, Detective Allison was also considering another possibility in the case that included Beverly's husband, Carl Carter. Fifty-year-old Beverly Carter vanished while showing a beautiful property in Scott, Arkansas, and though her husband was the one that reported her as missing, authorities weren't so sure that he was innocent after all. As we know with most true crime cases, when a husband or wife is murdered or goes missing, the first person to look into is the spouse. What was their life like at home? Did they have issues? Was there an affair? And it's often that we see that the spouse is somehow connected. So it isn't a surprise that Carl Carter was a suspect initially in this case. Authorities did their typical questioning and learned that yes, the couple had financial issues. Yes, there had been infidelity in the marriage. And lastly, yes, Carl had once hit Beverly during a heated argument, and he told authorities that it had been many years ago when they were dating, and that they had been inside the car driving home and that Carl was intoxicated while driving. Carl said that Beverly wanted him to stop driving because he was drunk and she was yelling and screaming and Carl hit her. She demanded to be let out of the car and Carl pulled over, dropped her off and drove away and then accidentally drove himself straight into a ditch. Carl said that Beverly completely forgave him for this incident because she knew that wasn't like Carl to act in that manner. Again, this was while they were dating and he said it was only the one time that he ever struck her and never did it again. But in the eyes of the authorities, this could potentially have been something that was more than a one-time thing, and that things could have been a lot worse between them than he was leading on. Carl was completely forthcoming with the police, and even later admitted in an interview that he wasn't surprised that he was considered a suspect. 
They also questioned Carl as to why he would have entered the home completely contaminating their crime scene. And while I think all of our true crime brains want to yell out, don't walk into that crime scene, we also need to remember that not everyone is like us. Not everyone watches or listens to true crime, so they may not know that they advise not doing that, that it can completely hinder a case. For Carl, that was his wife. What if she was in there? What if she was hurt? What if she was bound and gagged in there and he needed to free her? He wasn't thinking about the crime scene or what going in there may do to it. All he was thinking about was the love of his life. The more that authorities dug into Carl and questioned him, the more they became confident that he wasn't responsible for his wife's disappearance. Not only that, but authorities were also working on trying to figure out who the individuals were that Beverly had the contact information for. And this is when they really knew without a doubt that Carl wasn't involved. So as I said earlier, inside of Beverly's car, they found the listing for the home and attached to it was names of the couple she was set to meet as well as their phone number and email address. The name of the couple was Steve and Crystal Adams, but authorities found that the phone number that had been given to Beverly was a fake number and it didn't belong to either of those two individuals. Furthermore, they also found that the email address was fake as well. But if you know anything about technology, when you create an email, you're required to put in your contact information or a backup way to obtain a lost password. They were able to piece together enough information to find out that the email that was given was a fake email, but it was actually owned by a man named Aaron Lewis. And Aaron Lewis was married to a woman by the name of Crystal Lowry. Now, during all of this investigative work, Beverly's friends, co-workers, family, and even complete strangers came together to begin searching. They had real estate agents from all over the state of Arkansas come to the Little Rock area to help bring awareness to this case. They passed out colored 8x10 flyers that included a new headshot that Beverly just had taken on the flyer as well as her information. The local news also really jumped on this story and was featuring updates nightly on the case, trying to spread awareness and help however they could to bring Beverly home. When the authorities got the names of Aaron and Crystal, they went over to the home that they lived in, but instead of knocking on the door and demanding answers, they decided that they would post up outside of the home waiting to see if Aaron Lewis came outside and if he matched the physical description of the man that the neighbor had seen. Luckily for authorities, it didn't take long for Aaron to come out of the house and leave. And to their surprise, he matched the description that the neighbor said to a T. Detective Allison was incredibly hopeful that Aaron was leaving his residence and going wherever he was holding Beverly hostage. He was still hopeful that they were going to find Beverly alive because at this point, she had only been missing for a few days. So as Aaron left his home, the authorities attempted to discreetly follow behind him. But he must have been on high alert and paranoid because he quickly realized that he was being followed and took off at a high speed. 
And that didn't end well for him because he ended up crashing his car and had injuries bad enough to his face and head that he needed to be taken to the hospital. The authorities that were following him were the ones that took him to the hospital. And as a standard rule, police aren't allowed in the room during certain testing. So they had to sit back and wait for all of that to be finished before they could take Aaron in for questioning. Aaron was supposed to be taken back for an MRI and somehow he managed to escape the hospital. When the authorities finally figured out that he ran off, they immediately put out to all media sources that they were on a manhunt for this guy. And before everyone knew it, his face was all over social media and the news. The local news stations cut into their programming to bring the breaking news. So it reached people fast and thankfully so. It was because of the news coverage and his face being splashed everywhere that he was quickly recognized. Two guys who were managers at a mortgage company were sitting inside of their office talking about Beverly and her case when they look out the window and see a man standing at the bus stop. And to their surprise, this man looked an awful lot like Aaron Lewis, who the cops were searching for. One of the guys called 911 while the other guy walked outside and approached Aaron. The guy that approached Aaron said that he was really standoffish at first and wasn't really willing to engage him in conversation. But the guy just played it off cool like he was curious about the times that the buses ran and before he knew it, Aaron was opening up to him chatting like nothing was wrong. The guy thanked him and walked back inside of his work and said that he knew without a doubt that that was Aaron. But before the police could arrive to that bus stop, the guys spotted Aaron walking across the street and going into a local subway shop. He didn't stay in there for too long, but when he came back out, Aaron had overheard someone say, hey, that's him. And once more, he took off running. Just as he was running off, the police were pulling up and they saw him make a dash for an apartment complex. Aaron ran up a flight of stairs and found a second story apartment unlocked and ran through that apartment and jumped over the balcony in attempt to flee. But he didn't make it far and he was finally taken down and put in handcuffs. They took Aaron down to the station where they began questioning him on where Beverly was and what he did with her. When Beverly's friends and family learned that Aaron had been captured, they all were holding out that shred of hope that finally she was going to come home. To Detective Allison's surprise, Aaron didn't deny kidnapping her. He admitted to kidnapping Beverly for the purpose of getting money. He said that he found her online and did some research on her and found out who she was and felt like she was the type of person that had a lot of money and so he started to hatch his plan. He had contacted Beverly about seeing the house and she had expressed not wanting to meet with him alone and he assured her that his wife would be there. His wife Crystal even got on the phone and said that she would. He said that when Beverly arrived at the house and Crystal wasn't there, he made an excuse as to why she wasn't there, but proceeded to tell Beverly that he wanted to still see the house. He did ask her to take some pictures of the home to send to Crystal. Aaron said that when Beverly and him walked up the stairs of the home, he pulled out a flashlight taser and told her she was about to have a bad day. 
This took Beverly by complete surprise, and she was confused and asked him, what do you mean? And he replied with, you're being kidnapped. I cannot imagine the fear and the panic that Beverly felt hearing this man say those words. And during this time, there had been other news of brutal attacks and slayings of real estate agents that had been happening across the country. And I'm sure her mind immediately went to that. And it's really sad to think about because Beverly had tried to protect herself, insisting that this man brought his wife. And to have the wife reassure her over the phone that she would be there and then for him to show up without her, I just can't imagine what she felt. Now, Aaron also told authorities that he didn't act alone in this kidnapping and that he had help of a man named Trevor. Aaron said that if anything happened to Beverly, Trevor was responsible. Aaron said that the last time that he saw Beverly, she was with Trevor and that he had proof that she was alive with a voice recording from her. On his cell phone, he played an audio of Beverly talking. In this audio, you can tell that she was nervous and upset, but she speaks directly to her husband, Carl. She says that she's fine, she hasn't been hurt, and to do whatever the man says. She tells Carl not to call the police or things could be bad. She ends the recording saying, I just want you to know I love you very much. Aaron Lewis tells authorities that he will take them to the place where he last saw Beverly. They loaded him up in the back of a cop car and drove 30 miles to an abandoned shed off the side of the road. When the authorities entered this shed, it was apparent that she wasn't there, nor had she ever been there. But Aaron once more said that he would take them to a different location where he initially had taken Beverly. This time, it was a house in the opposite direction. And once more, they went there and it was clear that she hadn't been there either. So here the authorities are being yo-yoed around by Aaron Lewis, who thinks he can just control authorities and they'll jump when he says jump. This pissed Detective Allison off so bad that he had to ride back to the station with someone else because he was too mad to drive. It was clear as day this guy was playing games and messing with them, and they were not about to allow that to happen. While Detective Allison was being led on this wild goose chase, cops back in Scott, Arkansas was able to track down this Trevor who was supposedly Aaron's accomplice. They learned that Trevor was a man that Aaron had lived with for a brief time and that he was an airman stationed at the base in Little Rock. They brought him in and interrogated him and learned that he wasn't even in the town of Scott and that he had been at work on the base on the evening that Beverly went missing. And his story of being at work had been corroborated by Trevor's higher-ups at work as well as the Air Force's Office of Special Investigations. So Trevor was completely cleared of having any kind of involvement in the case. With not much else to go on, authorities were trying to figure out any other possible location that Beverly could have been at. Grasping at straws, Detective Allison straight up asked Aaron if Beverly was at Argos. Now, Argos is a cement plant that Aaron had recently worked at. Detective Allison said that when he asked that question to Aaron, Aaron had actually been looking down at the table, and as soon as the words left his lips, Aaron looked up at him and had what Detective Allison described as a stupid look on his face. 
He figured with that look that Aaron had that that had to be where Beverly was. They immediately sent officers over to Argo's cement plant to search for her, still hoping that they'd find her alive. At this point, four days had gone by since her kidnapping, and her entire family and friends waited on pens and needles to hear the news that she had been found. When authorities arrived at Argos, they started searching the area, and it wasn't long before one of the officers came across a shallow grave that had been dug just behind the plant, and he saw an elbow sticking out of the grave. When they removed some of the dirt, inside they found Beverly Carter's lifeless body with her head completely wrapped in green duct tape. Aaron Lewis was immediately charged with murder and kidnapping, and they also arrested and charged his wife Crystal Lowry as his accomplice. The news immediately swarmed the sheriff's office when they got the word that he was arrested, and one of the reporters asked him while he was being put into the back of the cop car, why Beverly? And Aaron's reply was, because she was a rich broker. Two weeks after his arrest, the same reporter that asked that question interviewed him in jail. But this time he was singing a different song. This time, he was telling her that he didn't kill Beverly. On top of that, he said that he met up with Beverly for a sexual hookup and that whatever happened was a complete accident. In their first court appearance, both Aaron Lewis and Crystal Lowry pled not guilty. With this story of this sexual encounter going wrong, the district attorney wanted to see if he could get Aaron's wife, Crystal, to flip on him. They offered Crystal a reduced sentence of 30 years in prison if she testified against Aaron and pled guilty to kidnapping and murder. She agreed. During Aaron's trial, Crystal was put on the stand to tell her side of the story, and she said it had nothing to do with sex at all, and it was always about money. Crystal said that when they first started talking about everything, it was Aaron's idea to kidnap someone for money, but it was her idea to kidnap a real estate agent because they were known to have a lot of money. Crystal testified that on the day that Aaron abducted Beverly, she was in a class at her nursing school. Crystal stated that while in class, she received a text message from Aaron that had a picture of Beverly bound in the trunk of the car. She claimed that when she got home from class that night, Aaron had brought Beverly back to their home and had her locked inside of their bathroom. And here is where you are going to see just how stupid this guy was. The entire motive for this whole ordeal was money. But after he kidnapped Beverly and drove away from the home off of Old River Drive, he realized that he drove off without getting Beverly's credit cards or wallet. Crystal said that when she got home from school, Aaron left the house to go back to the Old River Drive property to get her purse. But when he pulled up into the neighborhood, he was surprised to find that there were already cops outside of the home. And on top of that, they also had patrol officers stopping people as they were coming and going into the neighborhood to ask them if they had seen anything and to make them aware of Beverly's disappearance. And Aaron Lewis himself was also stopped. 
This officer had talked to Aaron, not realizing that he was looking at the man who was responsible for Beverly's disappearance. And it's so sad to think about because at this point, Beverly was still alive. Had they known maybe sooner what the suspect had looked like, maybe she could have been saved. Of course, this is not that officer's fault. How was he supposed to know? But it just sucks because they almost had their guy before they even really had to search for him. Crystal tells the jury that after Aaron got back to the house empty-handed, he and Crystal were at a loss of what to do now. Because Beverly had been in the bathroom, they feared that she had seen Crystal's name on her prescription bottles. And so in their eyes, there was nothing else that they could do but kill her. Aaron then put Beverly back into the trunk of his car and drove her to Argo's cement plant, and it was there that he wrapped her head in duct tape and allowed her to suffocate. And what a horrific way to die. Suffocation is not a quick death. I know we see on TV and in the movies it's quick, but that is simply not the case. Suffocating is probably, in my opinion, one of the worst ways to die. It is a long and drawn out process, and it can take anywhere between 6 and 15 minutes to die that way. Not only that, but it is said that a person can experience hallucinations, serious pain, blood vessel rupture, and much worse while they suffocate. It is not an easy or calm way to go. And I absolutely hate that Beverly had to spend her last moments on this earth living in such pain and horror. Her family says that the only comfort that they have in knowing that she died was that they know that God was there to comfort Beverly in those last excruciating moments. After Aaron knew that Beverly was dead, he drove home and told his wife that she was gone. In court, the prosecution played the voice recording that Beverly had made for her husband. The defense had no way defending that audio tape, so instead they chose to ignore it and focus on Aaron's story that this was all about sex and it was a horrible accident. On top of this initial sex story that Aaron had told, he flipped his story in court and said that he wasn't the one that had sex with Beverly, but instead it was his wife Crystal that had sex with her and accidentally killed her during rough sex. Aaron claimed that he was just being the protective husband and was willing to take the fall for his wife. The defense really tried to spin a story that Beverly was someone that made bad decisions because here she was having money issues, yet she was driving a brand new Cadillac and she had just recently had some plastic surgery done. So for the defense, they were trying to sell the idea that Beverly likely made a bad decision to have an affair with Crystal Lowry and then to have rough sex, which this was so completely offensive. And it really upset her family that here she is, their beloved Beverly is dead, and this man is trying to paint her in such a negative light. And the cherry on top of how stupid this guy is, while he was on the stand, Aaron Lewis told the jury that he had synthesized Beverly's voice and made that recording, and it was all fake. The jury was sent to go deliberate, and they were back within an hour with a verdict. 
Aaron Lewis was found guilty on all counts and was given two life sentences. Her entire family felt instant relief knowing that this man will never step outside of prison walls ever again. Though it doesn't bring back their sweet Beverly, justice was served. One thing that I love that families do is turn their tragedy into something positive, and that is exactly what Beverly's family did. They started the Beverly Carter Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to the safety of real estate professionals and those they serve. Beverly's son, Carl Jr., travels around teaching people about the safeties of being a real estate agent and what to do to protect yourself. I will have the direct link to the website for her foundation in the description of this episode so you can read up on what they offer and what they do as well as donate to her foundation if you wish to do so. In March of 2020, Crystal Lowry wrote a three-page letter to the Arkansas governor asking that her 30-year sentence be reduced. In the letter, which I will actually have a direct link so you can read it for yourself, but in the letter, Crystal writes that she has a debt to pay to the society and that it would be more productive to pay this debt volunteering and monitoring on the outside than her staring at four walls on the inside eating up taxpayers' dollars. She writes that she is asking for a second chance to prove herself redeemable to society. She also writes in the letter that she is a good person from a good home that just got mixed up with the wrong guy. Crystal also wrote about how she's since found God in prison and has been working on bettering herself since being incarcerated. She also claims that she is now rehabilitated and will do whatever she needs to do to prove that she is and that she is not a danger to anyone. However, Crystal still remains in custody and will not be eligible for parole until November 29th, 2035, when she is 62 years old. And in my opinion, Crystal is lucky that she will get out that early. I appreciate her standing up and testifying in court against Aaron, but she knew what she was doing when she agreed that killing Beverly was the best option. She knew what she was doing when she sat in that house waiting for Aaron to come back with Beverly's purse. She had plenty of time to rethink what was happening and to allow Beverly to go free, but she didn't. And for that, I fully believe that she is right where she belongs and she doesn't deserve to get out any earlier than she already is going to be getting. Though Beverly is no longer here on this earth, her family keeps her memory alive with her foundation. Crimeaholics, if you are not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you join it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. Also, if you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's case. Kinsey will be back Monday with another Missing Monday. Until next time, be aware and take care.